and you're on the Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions? We've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, and spousal support. Tonight I'm on with our regular guest host, Attorney Raj Matani. Um, Raj, are you with us this evening? Good evening, Vince. It's a pleasure to be back. Very good, Raj. Raj, before we launch into our usual uh, question and answer session, um, I want to pick up a topic that we have been discussing over the past maybe two or three weeks, maybe longer, and that's a celebrity divorce. Do you have any information uh, on that? I do, I do. Uh, you know, I now set a Google alert on my phone, so I'm I'm abreast of all developments in this celebrity case. Uh, so something actually happened today, or the news of it broke today. And this is for for people who are just joining us. This is in relation to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, celebrity divorce. Um, people might know Johnny Depp from uh, his Pirates of the Caribbean movies, a few other things. Um, and Amber Heard's a little less known celebrity. Um, she's done a few uh, small, co- small, small films that haven't got much acclaim, but she's she's somewhat accomplished. Uh, what's happened so far in the case is that uh, the parties have filed for divorce. It was quite contentious. Uh, there was also a filing for domestic violence restraining order. I think the temporary of which was granted, but the parties seem to have settled on that issue. So that's not one of the big things that's going on. And uh, now they're on to, or it seems like, efforting towards settling the whole case. And, you know, the usual arc of a divorce case is is pretty long-winded. You know, you first have to file the case initially. The other side gets to do a response. And then you do an exchange of disclosures uh, explaining what you consider to be your marital property as well as uh, all of your financial information. And that's the part of the case that these parties are in now. And what's interesting is that um, Ms. Hurd's attorney has requested a disclosure of financial documents from from Mr. Depp and his attorney, Laura Wasser. Typically, the typical mechanism for this is a discovery request of some kind. Um, And the statutory response period is 30 days from that date. Mr. Depp has thrown a caveat into the situation and is expressing to the court that he's not going to release any financial information, not because he doesn't have it, but because uh, he wants Ms. Hurd to sign a confidentiality agreement not to release this information to the public. Um, And because she won't sign a confidentiality agreement, he's refusing to hand over any documents to the court. And, you know, this is a really, really interesting situation. And, um, I, you know, only affects the very wealthy, and we've dealt with this on a few occasions, but I haven't run into this uh, uh, thought process, and I'm I'm interested in making sure that we do this for our clients, but, uh, uh, you know, the court's going to have to make a decision whether or not Mr. Depp is going to be compelled to turn over these documents, 
whether or not Ms. Heard turns over the uh, signs of confidentiality waiver or not. So um, that's the big fight that that's going on right now, and um, you know I'm going to stay on top of it and see what the judge decides. But uh, sort of that's the battle that two sides are having now, and uh, it might be the only thing that's that's stopping a resolution. So pretty interesting development today, then. Interesting, interesting. What do you think the judge will decide? You know, I, I haven't done a, uh, any research on if there's any cases where this has happened before, but, um, you know, whenever there's a divorce case uh, and the one side is refusing to turn over discovery documents, the way that this is, is typically remedied is the side that's seeking those papers uh, will file what's called a motion to compel. And, you know, that's asking this court to say, please force this other side to deliver these documents to me, um, you know, despite uh, their objections, despite any uh, concerns that they may have, and um, potentially also give me a granting of some fees for having to go, go forward with this. Um, I think Mr. Depp demonstrates some good cause as to why the document shouldn't be leaked uh, or why the document shouldn't be turned over without a confidentiality agreement. Um, these are highly public people. They're, um, you know, their lives are not just, um, you know, like uh, the average family where they are dealing in minimal assets. You know, this could expose them to a lot of, a, a lot of different um, obligations and and uh, uh, ridicule from the public. So, uh, I think a judge might consider that he has uh, a good reason not to disclose those documents, or the judge might put in some protections as to, you know, how those documents are to be handled. So uh, I think a judge might, uh, may not require Ms. Hurt to sign a confidentiality agreement, but I think that they would put in some very strict parameters or uh, implement some consequences if the documents are, are leaked to the public. Um, and, uh, you know, it, this case has some history of that. There's accusations that uh, Ms. Hurd has leaked you know, the scope of their settlement offers to the, the TMZ and all these other uh, gossip sites. And so um, it's a real concern. I think it's something they could probably demonstrate, and I think it's an issue they could probably win. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens. Very interesting. Raj, we have another guest host with us tonight. And I would That's like true. you to do an introdu I would like you to do an introduction for him while I bring him on the line. Sure. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, we're excited to bring on a, a, a new uh, colleague to our office and a new guest host to our weekly program. Uh, his name is Attorney Dan Knowlton. He has over 30 years of experience in family law, skilled trial attorney, uh, and he's uh, going above and beyond the requirements of, of a family law attorney. He's uh, just passed the certified family law specialist exam and is in the process of being fully certified. So we're really excited to bring Dan and his over 30 years of experience. Uh, he's worked uh, primarily in San Diego, but now he's bringing his uh, sunny disposition over to, to Los Angeles, and really, we're really excited to have him uh, join our program. Dan, are you on the line? Can you hear us? I am. Thank you, Raj, for that very generous introduction. I'm looking forward My to pleasure. participating. My well, as our listeners know, we usually get uh, questions from clients and potential clients um, on our websites, or they call in and ask questions, or they email us questions for the radio show. So, Raj and Daniel, why don't we just jump into the first question? 
And the first question is, I'm going through a child custody visitation battle with my ex-husband. He lives in California, and I live in Washington. Would we be able to settle this matter through mediation? If so, would I be able to appear for the mediation via phone? Daniel, what do you think? Well, I think it is quite possible that it could be settled through mediation. Uh, There are several types of mediation. One is uh, private mediation. You can hire a private mediator to deal with these things, and that's more confidential oftentimes than uh, using court proceedings. Uh, Or, of course, in uh, any child custody matter, um, there's the Family Court Services um, Agency, which is an arm of the Superior Court, and... um, the court, before it makes a decision regarding custody or visitation, has to have a report or a recommendation or an agreement from FCS, the Family Court Services. And yes, this uh, individual could appear by phone. That's a possibility. Uh, let's assume that it's FCS because that's uh, much cheaper than private mediation. <clears throat> and if she or he appears by phone, uh, the only thing I would would say is, uh, while they could do it, it's a lot less impressive to be calling into the mediator who's going to recommend something impacting your children for many years. It's a lot less impressive to be by phone than to be present. So I always encourage people to be present for those mediation sessions if they can. Um, may I go a little further on this? Uh, Certainly. The one, the one question that I uh, wonder about when I see this is, where has the child or the children lived in the past six months? We have uh, uh, one party in Washington and one in California. But the, uh, where the uh, court will be adjudicating it depends on the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction Enforcement Act. And that law, uh, which is applicable to interstate-type divorce arrangements, um, holds that where the children have lived for the last six months is the court where the, the um, normally where the home state of the children is, and that's where the matter would be adjudicated, or the court that would hear and decide the matter. So if the children have lived in Washington, chances are the judges are going to talk to each other about the case. They're required to by law. <clears throat> and then they'll decide uh, with the input from counsel as to which state would have priority over it. Now, uh, once the court accepts that decision, accepts that authority to proceed with the custody case, they're called the initial decree state, and the other court has to uh, back away from it. Uh, But to be an initial decree state, you also, that, that court has to find that there were significant contacts with the children and the evidence um, pertaining to the child custody visitation matter. There are other exceptions, of course. Um, A court could uh, invoke emergency jurisdiction, or a court could act if the the other state doesn't act. That's called vacuum jurisdiction. But until we know exactly where the children have been living, that that, uh, we really can't determine which state it will be in. Very good. Raj, anything you want to add to that? No, no. Um, I, I, that's a very that's a very comprehensive analysis, and I th- I think everyone can tell that uh, Dan did just fine on that family law specialist exam because his issue spotting and analysis was first class. 
<laughs> very good, very good. Okay, well, next you. question. Recently, my three boys came to visit me in Northern California. They live with their father, who has full custody. When they got here, I canceled their plane tickets home. My ex-husband is threatening me now, saying he is going to report me for kidnapping them. What can I do now? Raj, what do you think? Well, this is a a, a really interesting case. Um, We hear this question from clients very often that, you know, I don't like this order. What can I do? What can I do to fix it or change it or, uh, or, or get the court to be more on my side? Obviously, the proper mechanism is to file a notice motion to the court um, via a, a request for order and ask for a modification and express to the court why you're asking for the changes you're asking for. However, even with all of those things, all of those proper legal procedures, at the end of the day, all that a court order is is a piece of paper. It requires uh, enforcement and in, in the uh, event that somebody's not following the order, it requires you know further action through the courts. So uh, the fact that this person canceled the plane ticket, um, my advice would probably be, uh, first of all, to communicate with the ex-husband and figure out and explain to them why the tickets were canceled. Um, You know, it doesn't say in the question that maybe something, she was told something about the kids or some event happened or or something like that was there. So figure out, you know, uh, uh, why the circumstances are the way they are and express to the husband why you canceled the ticket. Um, if that doesn't go anywhere, uh, I would next uh, make sure you put in writing to the husband as to why you're doing what you're doing so that in the event that there's a motion, you could have a, a documented record of the decision process and why you've chosen to do what you do. did. And then the last thing would be uh, kind of sit back and see what happens. Um, if, if the other side wants to act on their threat, um, you know, they have to call the police, they can ask for a DA pickup, they can um, file a motion for contempt, they can do a whole slew of other things, but in the interim, uh, the kids are with you, um, and whether that has any potential criminal consequences is beyond my scope of expertise, but, um, you know, my advice to this client would be sort of uh, cover your butt. Uh, with a call and a, a a letter, and then thirdly would be probably just sit back and wait, and and if the police come, they come, and uh, you deal with the consequences that way. Dan, what do you think? Well, I think you're right, uh, Raj. One thing the the uh, client says though is that the children have lived with their father who has full custody, so that implies to me that there is a court um, adjudication, a court decision already giving dad custody. So. Um, just because mom might have some reasons not to return the kids, we, we uh, um, and she could file a request for order in, say, Northern California, that likely would fail probably because the court would uh, want to uphold this, the seriousness of the custody determination. Um, the, uh, so in general, she should return the children unless she has a, a very serious reason not to. And the very serious reason could be domestic violence. If there has been right. domestic violence that the children have been exposed to or that, that they tell her that um, that they've been subjected to domestic violence, then a step for her would be to contact CPS or 
called CWS in some places, and uh, Child Protective Services. And uh, if um, uh, if that happens, then of course uh, they might intercede and make um, orders basically to the parents about where they want the children held for the time being. Now that's just if there's uh, something serious about domestic violence. But again, I repeat that most in most situations like this, if there's not se serious domestic violence, you probably should respect the existing court order and return the children to Southern California. A motion to transfer the case could be made in Southern California, have it transferred to Northern California. But again, it sounds like Dad is still in Southern California, so that motion to transfer will probably fail. I think, Dan, wouldn't you uh, probably agree that if, if the allegations are that serious or if the circumstances are that serious uh, of domestic violence or something of that nature, uh, it would probably be prudent of mother to, to file an ex parte motion and make sure the court understands that you know these are the grounds in which she's seeking to modify custody and these are the grounds that uh, were reasons why she's keeping the children with her, that it wasn't a, just a whim, that there was some real substance behind her decision. Yes, I absolutely agree, and it would be best, I think, to file that motion in Southern California uh, to yeah. show the court that you're respecting their authority, because probably uh, a motion filed in Northern California is going to upset the judge thinking that uh, he's being backdoored. Correct. Yeah. I would agree with that as well. Well, those are two very good answers, gentlemen. Let's go to question number three. My husband and I are looking to divorce now. After eight years of marriage, we custom-built a home in Orange County. How can I make sure he does not get any rights to this home? We shared all the costs of the house equally, but I want to keep this house and raise my children here. Daniel? Well, um, this, this raises some really good questions. The, the primary question is who holds title to the house? Um, I'm assuming, uh, for the sake of argument, that it, the, uh, the house is held in joint tenancy or 50-50 ownership. Um, but if husband, for example, holds the house title alone, uh, then there's a question about whether a, a tr proper transmutation was done to put it into his name. And if a uh, proper transmutation, which requires a written instrument signed by the other spouse, uh, if that was not done, then um, a question can be raised of uh, undue influence to uh, have allowed that transfer to be made to the husband. There's a presumption of undue influence when there are transfers made between spouses in California. And uh, when that happens, the burden of proof is on the party uh, to show that no unfair advantage was taken um, in the transaction. Of course, if the title is held in in the other spouse's name, let's say wife's name, then the situation is entirely reversed. Now, going back to the original thought that perhaps the title is in joint names or both names, one thing that uh, the, the uh, wife could do is she could ask for a family home award. And a family home award is asking the court to um, because to say to order that the house not be sold for a certain period of time because the effect it would have on the children would be too deleterious, that the, the kids would be emotionally affected or the stability would be um, 
affected adversely by the sale. So sometimes you can get a court under the statute about the Family Home Award to um, hold up a sale for maybe four or five years until the kids are a little older and can handle it. In the old days, uh, sometimes the courts would hold up these sales until the kids were 18. But uh, I, I think the courts now are doing much more careful balancing balancing the need of the children to have a stable home versus the effect on the uh, the spouse, the financial effect on the spouse who needs the home sold to get his money and to go on to a new life. So the court has to do that delicate balancing act. But that is one way that the house can be kept unsold. Um, now, if the the mother, the wife, let's assume, wants to just keep the house and raise the children there, that itself is not a sufficient reason to that, that she could keep the house as her title to own the house outright, 100%. That's not a sufficient reason. The court still has to respect community property interest rights of both parents, but under a family home award, it could delay the sale um, and until later. Now, one advantage to mother to delay the sale, and to father too, if you want to look at it that way, is that the house may appreciate in value. And if it does, then they both share in that appreciation for it being unsold. Of course, you know, the real estate market may be uh, <laughs> on the verge of doing a repeat back to 2008, in which case then they're in a precipitous situation where they wouldn't want to do a family home award because the property should be sold at a higher price now. Raj, uh, how do you think? And, well, Dan, I was, I, you know, as you were talking, it sort of raised a few light bulbs in my head as well. If she was to keep the home either under a family home award or or some other aspect of the litigation, it would have a real effect on child and spousal support too, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And Watts credits and uh, other things. But, uh, yes, we do have concerns about uh, um, mother's increased needs. Say that mother is in the home, and if she's in the home, the, the party who's in the home with the kids normally is required to pay the payments, the principal, interest, taxes, and insurance uh, alone on the house during that period of time, say for five years, if that's the period of time for the home award. So mother would be paying 100% of the PITI, who I would call that. <clears throat> and so she has an increased need for that. She therefore could argue that she has an increased need for uh, spousal support particularly, and uh, maybe maybe use that as, an, as a reason for a deviation on child support uh, guidelines. Uh, that, I think, is more questionable. And conversely, the dad um, um, then um, should be paying more in the way of support. So he has more exposure to support if he does that. And oftentimes the dad is very reluctant to do it because of that very argument, because now he can't get his money to reinvest in a new home for him and his new partner. And what's more, he has more exposure to higher support. So that's an excellent uh, question, Raj. Gentlemen, a very, very good analysis. Very good analysis. Okay, let's go to the next question. My wife and I are getting divorced because of infidelity. In fact, I recently found out that our two children were not biologically mine. In the past, I bought my wife two different cars, one for her personal use and one to transport the children. I put both of the cars in her name. How can I take these back from her? They are still worth a lot of money, 
and I'm the one paying the car note each month. <laughs> Raj, what, what do you think about that? You know, this uh, this question is sort of a little bit all over the place, so um, maybe we'll take take it in parts. Uh, the first part I want to address is not actually the call of the question, but some of the background facts. Uh, if these these parties are getting divorced in California, the fact of infidelity is, uh, while it's personally meaningful, is irrelevant to the court. So uh, if they're getting a divorce based on infidelity, California is a no-fault state. So whether he cheated, she cheated, or who can prove it, uh, the court's not going to care. You check that box, irreconcilable differences, and and, uh, move forward. Uh, On the second part of the background facts, about finding out that his children are not biologically his, um, he needs to investigate this issue um, very seriously. Uh, there's a statutory presumption that uh, if you're listed on the, and Dan can maybe clarify me on this, but if you're listed on the uh, birth certificate or you've held out the child uh, uh, to be yours, that the presumption is against that father that you are the presumed father of, of those children. And uh, unless somebody comes forward to rebut that presumption within the statutory allowed t- statutorily allowed time, uh, he's going to be on the hook for support of those children until they're 18. So uh, that's going to be a big issue in their case. Lastly, uh, on the issue of the cars, uh, you know, this kind of falls under the uh, presumptions under under divorce law. Um, if the cars were acquired during the time of marriage, they are considered uh, community property. Uh, Dan alluded to to some of the issues in in our last question about uh, how holding title and uh, whose name and intent can can be uh, litigated. But, uh, you know, essentially these cars will be considered community property and uh, should be divided in the course of the divorce. And if they're still worth a lot and he's paying the notes on them each month, um, it would probably be an issue for the court to figure out who gets what and who takes on those obligations. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? Well, um, the the client seems to want to know whether they could take back, uh, whether he can take back the cards from her. And um, I, in short, he probably cannot, but he does have an interest, if even though the, the uh, cards are titled in her name. Um, as a temporary matter, he could bring an, uh, a request for order, an RFO, asking for temporary use and possession of, of to be assigned of the vehicles, say one to him and one to her. And uh, as another alternative, of course, he could stop paying the loans which are pressing on him. Uh, but of course, you know, that could that could bring pressure on her to, to um, make a, a settlement with him. But it also risks wrecking his credit, their credit, and a repossession. Um, well, and because, Dan, there are also there are also the standard uh, family law restraining orders, right? He wouldn't be allowed absolutely. to affect the nature of a community asset uh, while the litigation is pending, correct? No, cor- absolutely correct. He could not transfer them, for example. But uh, as far as whether he could stop paying on the basis that he didn't have the funds to do it, that I think is a, a very unanswered question in this kind of a situation. You see that a lot with insurance, for example. Um, and if he brings that RFO to sell one of the cars, 
the odds are that he'll lose that. In general, he has much better odds if he waits until trial and brings up the question about uh, selling the cars at trial, because typically the judges don't like to order uh, assets sold at the pendente lite or the uh, temporary order level, at the RFO level. Um, and one interesting point about this, again, is that, you know, these are, by the, by the client's question, these are cars that are in her name. So there's a question about whether a valid transmutation has occurred to put those cars into her name. Normally, she would have to show that there's a written document signed by him um, showing that he intends, with an express declaration, that he intends that uh, ownership be transferred to her by that. And uh, so she might say, well, here's the car pink slip. The pink slip shows that he signed it over into my name. Well, that question has actually been ruled on by a couple courts now where they have held that signing over a pink slip to a car is not a valid transmutation. It might be a valid transmutation if for real estate where the signature or signing over a grant deed uh, can be held to be that, but it is, that is not being applied in car transfers. So these very valuable cars are probably still community property if the assets used to buy them were accumulated during marriage. Oh, and Raj, before I leave this, I, I do mention uh, what you've talked about with regard to um, the children being born during the marriage or not. Uh, there is that presumption about them being born during marriage, but the court would normally weigh that against the presumption or the genetic proof of the, the uh, uh, proof of who the actual father is. But I haven't spent much time on that question here because the real question is about the cars and whether or not the kids are his has little to do with the cars. Right. No, that's that's definitely true. I the re only reason I bring that up is. Uh, I don't know that they would throw that fact in there if it wasn't uh, concerning to them. And, you know, we see that from time oh, to bet. time, Vince. Yeah, we see that. I know I just dealt with a case uh, here in our office where, um, you know, the our client was not the, bi was not the biological dad of, I think, uh, one of the children that, you know, he was named on the birth certificate for and the other and the mother was uh, refusing to allow him custody. So uh, it became a big issue about this presumption and uh, mother claiming that this other father, this other fellow was the dad. And uh, it was pretty interesting how the court ruled on it. Instead of dealing with the presumptions or, or who's there, the court uh, sort of admonished mother and said, if you're playing this game about uh, telling this guy that these kids aren't his and trying to bring somebody in at, at the late stage of the game just to sort of penalize him, that uh, it would weigh very heavily against her when it came to custody and visitation, whether or not the children were biologically his. So, um, and, you know, and, Raj, if I, might, that's played. if I might add here, we are living in new times now, too, because the court now has authority under a new law that there can be more than just two parents. So when we start yep. weighing these presumptions, the court has several options. You know, uh, sometimes you'll sure. have, uh, you can have a, a, a child born during marriage and have that dad and someone else being a presumed dad and uh, and someone else being a genetic dad, you know. So the court has a lot of discretion these days. Yeah, we're do we're doing well, a case like that in two weeks. Exactly that situation. Raj, why don't you tell our listeners about that case? 
The the one that we're going to trial on in two weeks. Yes. Uh, I it's been sort of uh, uh, one of the more challenging cases that I've dealt with in my career, and uh, you know, thankfully I've had I've had Vince and his incredible expertise to uh, technically I'm assisting him, but uh, it's great that he's that he's doing it as well. But the situation that we have is that um, you know, mother was a self-represented litigant. Um, and sort of without knowing all of the uh, hurdles and issues she was creating for herself and allowing uh, certain evidence to come into the case and uh, deferring to the judges had sort of uh, placed herself in a very disadvantageous position. And she came to our office uh, looking to dig her out of that hole. And uh, the court, for whatever reason, had this impression that uh, father was some sort of an angel, and even though he had criminal restraining orders against him, gave him primary custody, legal, physical, and uh, restrained our client's current um, significant other from being around being around the children and being around the house. And um, Vince, I think you spent, I think upon retention of the client, I think you spent a whole week in uh, hearing, uh, just trying to dig our client out of this hole, and uh, you know, we went. I went for a review hearing on Monday, and it, these parties have come so far. And I think it's because of qualified counsel. But these parties have come so far that uh, we were on the verge of discussing settlement, of getting her her kids back, and uh, having sort of all these other restrictions removed in the span of I think less than two months. So um, one of the trial tactics that we utilized was to file a specific motion asking that uh, our client's current spouse, who has, you know, really been a gem and uh, has taken on the obligation of, of her and her child from a previous relationship, along with their joint child, uh, you know, to, to take sort of help everybody out. And we filed a motion that because of all that he's been doing and for how long that he's been doing it, that he should, uh, you know, be declared a, a uh, father of this child. And so uh, we have a hearing on that. Uh, in early August, and, uh, you know, we're looking forward to, to seeing how that plays out, but uh, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting time and a really interesting case for, for all involved. Very good. Let's go to our next question. Um, my husband recently passed away. He was a police officer in Southern California, and I know he has a pension. How do I gain access to his pension? When will the funds be transferred into my name? Who'd like to handle well, that one? Uh, <laughs> oh, I can well, uh, yeah, Dan, I, I, I think that'd be great, but uh, uh, I think for starters, this is more of a probate question. Wouldn't you agree, Dan? I agree, yes. It's it's a difficult one, but there are some community property aspects to it. Um, Fire away, sir. One of the, one of the questions that jumped out at me is, is the wife on the beneficiary designation of the uh, of the pension um, on on some of the provisions of the pension, perhaps? Um, whether she is or not, the wife probably has to file a motion in the probate court that the pension is community property. Now, I'm no probate attorney, but I believe that in probate court uh, a uh, a motion can be made to uh, adjudicate that. Uh, certain assets are held as community property and not as the husband's separate property. Uh, 
And if that's the case, then it would be asked of the probate court that half of that pension be awarded to her as um, as an asset that is owned by her, despite any designation he may have made in, to his estate or some other individual. Right. I, I mean, even before going to court, I think that she has to do a little bit of background first, right? I think she'd need to uh, go to his police officer's union or... or um, Supervising office or pension benefits office. I, I know, the police unit is a is a big uh, organization, and I'm sure they have all the records of this. So, um, I think that would be probably be a first step to figure out whether or not she's on the beneficiary designation, and uh, if the process can't be handled internally through them, then uh, I think she has no other option but to make sure that that this pension is litigated, so that uh, you don't, you know, fall into a bunch of the probate pit pit hall pitfalls where, um, you know, the husband doesn't have a will or, um, you know, his estate has to be probated and, and she might be kept out of the situation if she doesn't uh, proactively pursue it. Yes. And, of course, if she is in probate, then we're looking at a minimum six-month period of time um, that she would be tied up in probate before these funds would be released to her. That's a minimum. could go much longer, of course. Now, now, in a normal situation, if we're talking about a, a, a divorce situation, then, of course, any pension, if it's an ERISA pension, um, as most pensions are, that is a non-government type pension, typically, uh, then a qualified domestic relations order, or um, known as a quadro, a quadro would be done. And uh, then the chief reason for a quadro for her is that it allows her to have a separate interest in the pension, to have the pension divided by the administrator and that she would get payments independent of the husband um, upon his qualifying to retire. Um, and, uh, and Go ahead. And, Dan, I, I also think it should be noted that uh, there are certain kinds of pensions also need to be joined into the divorce proceeding, correct? Oh, yes. So yes. If no. it's, uh, if, I think if it's a, a government uh, government pension, it has to be joined, and if it's one of those non-government ones, I, I think it's optional, uh, if some, I remember correctly. Yeah, some uh, government pensions don't have to be joined, but I think, um, uh, I'm assuming that this is a PERS pension, uh, Cal, yeah. CalPERS, and I believe CalPERS has to be joined. So uh, it may very well be that she'd have to join the pension plan. Now, to join a pension plan means that you're actually making them a party to the divorce case, so now we have three parties to the divorce, you know, the husband, wife, and um, and the pension plan. Now the pension plan, of course, is not going to litigate much. They just want to. Uh, we just want to make sure that we the court has the power over them to rule on what portion of the pension goes to whom. Exactly. Yeah, I I would agree with a hundred percent of that. All right, very good analysis, gentlemen. Next question is, my ex-husband has not been paying his child support for over three years. In the past, he was working for a successful technology company. He is now self-employed and states he barely makes anything. I know this is not true. Can I demand he pay the support from his 401k plan? How can I secure my support? This is a very, very good question. Yes, it is. <clears throat> uh, may I? 
You can so sure. take the lead. Yes, sir. This the is the very, best way to introduce yourself to our audience. The very first thing I think that can be done to secure payment of, of uh, the support is to file an abstract of judgment, file a support abstract of judgment. Now, if all else fails, at least that um, will be a record with a county recorder, and if husband buys or sells real estate, he'll have to come to terms with paying off that um, those arrearages that are uh, shown in the abstract and the accruing arrearages. He'll have to pay all those off before the title company will give clear title to the house. So that probably is the simplest way to secure it. Um, it's a little more nebulous about whether you could um, do a uh, secure it against a 401k. My own opinion, without researching it deeply, is that I think you'd have to do a quadro. There are quadros can be done against pension administrators to um, secure the payment of support. I know that is a respected method. In a 401k, I'm not positive that can be done because a 401k is a is a uh, defined contribution plan as opposed to a defined benefits plan. But I would think that you probably could do a quadro for that. The disadvantage of a quadro is you may be waiting years until he's able to retire um, without uh, paying penalties. And um, let me see. There's one other option here, too, on this question. If he is behind in the support, you could uh, go to the court and ask the court to um, – if you have some other source of assets from him, you could ask the court to that he pay a lump sum into, a, say, an attorney's trust account that would serve as security for the future obligations of support. Um, now, that's not done very often, but it is an option that exists. Um, Raj, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, you know, I have a couple things to add. Um, you know, first of all, I... I would probably consider opening a case with the Department of Child Support Services. Um, it's been my experience, at least, that you know, if you get them involved in the case, their ability to um, intercept taxes, um, with oh, yes. his driver's license, do all of those uh, sort of collection methods that you could hire an attorney to do, but require sort of an input of money to get a return of money. Um, you know, they have all of those means, um, and I think stronger, sometimes stronger means to sort of make sure that the money gets paid, and then there's a, a defined record of what's been inputted and what hasn't been. Um, Absolutely. And they have access I would, to I the would, Franchise Tax Board records, too. Right. And uh, I, if you want to litigate the issue outside of DCSS, I would, um, in some ways, you know, here in, in Southern California, uh, uh, a lot of the child support cases are getting uh, transferred over to the DCSS building in, in CCW anyway. I think a lot of the judges just don't want to deal with it. Um, mm. But what you can also do is file a motion for judicial determination of arrearages. And, um, you know, the statute of limitations on it escapes me at the moment, but I do believe it is three years where you can go back and ask for uh, all the monies that, that haven't been paid, have the judge make a determination of what that exact amount is, how much interest is owed, um, and then I think then maybe go file that abstract of judgment as well, showing that this is the exact number that he's supposed to be paying and how much interest is is accruing. Um, and then the last part uh, as to verifying his uh, employment status or income status, um, 
the best way to do that is opening a case. So either through DCSS or through a motion to the court because anytime financial issues are involved at any point in a divorce, custody, or paternity case, um, it is required that the parties file a valid income and expense declaration and comply with uh, Local Rule 5.9 in uh, submitting their tax returns and pay stubs and uh, uh, you know loan applications. So um, there are ways that she can require that he provide documentation representing his position, and in the event he does not, then mother can uh, potentially have an argument for imputation of income. So um, there, you know, there are a lot of strategies that Dan outlined that I think are are fantastic, and uh, you know, there's a whole host of options that she can uh, look to in terms of making sure that she gets that support. The the good news for this client, this question is um, that there is a 10% statutory interest that accrues on these arrearages, um, and they yes. go on unlimited. So they, yes. uh, we've had some nice changes in the law about this. And uh, additionally, bankruptcy law has now changed to make them uh, so that they are a priority for bankruptcy administration. Um, right. Arrearages will be paid out before anything, before even the expenses of the uh, administration of the bankruptcy estate. You know, right. So there's a lot right. of protection. And ban- bankruptcy, doesn't, uh, bankruptcy doesn't cure those. Uh, those debts either, right? It's it's one of the things you cannot waive in bankruptcy. Exactly, and you can't get a discharge even in a Chapter 13 of them. They have to be current in a Chapter 13, too. Wow. All right, Stephen, gentlemen, we're we running out we of time. We can't go one week. <laughs> we can't go one week without discussing support. It's a topic on everyone's mind. Okay, next question. I have bought my wife expensive jewelry throughout our marriage. I know the total value of everything comes to a little bit over $1 million. Now that we are separated legally, I want to ask for everything back. How can I get everything from her legally? May I jump in on oh. this? Yeah, please. Sure. Please, Dan. Um, <clears throat> Of course, this depends on when the jewelry was bought, among other things. And that is because in uh, on January 1, 1985, the law changed. And we had the old law, which was that you could prove a, a transmutation occurred just by the, the oral um, declarations of the parties, of just by what the parties said to each other. You know, you could have pillow talk arguments that he promised me this, he promised me that, that kind of thing. But in... January 1st, 1985, uh, Family Code 850 was enacted, and that requires that any transmutations have to be in writing signed by the party to be affected uh, with an express declaration of the intent to change the character of that asset. So when were these assets bought? And even if they were bought after 85, uh, these are this is jewelry we're talking about, so that raises the question of the subsection of 850, uh, which says that a writing is not required if uh, it is jewelry of a personal nature used principally by the spouse to whom the gift was made and is not substantial in value relative to the circumstances of the marriage. So the question really is, how wealthy are you, client? If the client is uh, Donald Trump, for example, a million dollars is probably not a significant amount. Um, 
relative to his circumstances, and that could be a, a transmutation not requiring a written um, statement, a written um, expressed declaration. But for the rest of us mortals, it probably will require a written declaration, and since the question doesn't show a written declaration, my guess is this, this um, will be treated like it is community property owned by the parties equally, and so the husband will get at least half the value of that jewelry back. Dan, let me ask you a question. What if the wife asserts that these were all gifts to her from the husband? Well, I, I think we have the the um, Family Code 850 analysis will be the same. Even if she says they're gifts, it still requires a written transmutation and um, a written document signed by him. So it's highly unlikely that that was provided, even if they're gifts. Well, Daniel, let me tell our listeners, if we have an 850 problem, uh, it's a 1985 statute, is that statute retroactive? Or is there a different analysis for property um, purchased before 1985 when someone's getting divorced today? Boy, I love that question. Um, I don't think it is retroactive, despite the the uh, Marriage of Fellows case, which makes most of uh, family law statutes, if they're not expressed, retroactive, and um, Family Code Section 4, I think it is, which makes most family code new laws retroactive. Despite that, I think 80, uh, the uh, this 850 has been held that it is not retroactive. I, I believe that's the case. I um, haven't done um, a deep research on it, but I think that's the case. So really it turns on that date, and if it's before 85, then it's, uh, it can be pillow talk, and if it's after 85, it has to be in writing. Okay, Raj, you have anything to add to that? No, no, not at all. I, I, we had the conversation, I think, a couple of weeks ago about the about a engagement ring, but I think Dan would agree that the the nuances of uh, engagement and wedding ring gifts are a little bit different because they're you know gifts in anticipation of marriage. But for this specific client, um, you know, they're asking about uh, jewelry purchased during during the marriage, and uh, I believe Dan's 850 analysis is. 100% on point. Perfect. All right, the next question. When my grandmother passed away, she left me and my family a grand piano, a huge pure wood table, and a set of expensive dining china. Now that my husband and I are getting divorced, he is demanding half of the value of those gifts. Can he legally take my family heirlooms from me? Uh, Dan, do you, uh, you're our expert guest for today. Do you want to? <laughs> well, I think this is one of the easier questions that we have yeah. put to us. Uh, the answer is right. no. I think it's very clear that the that this is separate property. However, you have to assert in the divorce case that it is separate property. If this inheritance occurred during the marriage, the initial presumption of anything accumulated or acquired during marriage, the initial presumption by the court is this is community property. But the minute you put on proof that you inherited it, that rebuts the community property presumption, and now we're squarely under the statute uh, saying that inheritance and gifts 
are separate property. So, well, Dan, what Dan, if how the would husband? You, how would you go if, about? Sorry, go ahead, Ben. Um, what happens if the husband's attorney says, you know, that proper that uh, china we used at every family party, every you know, you know, maybe two three times a month, and it was really transmuted by action. What's our analysis? Well, the analysis is back to the jury in a sense, and that is, is the uh, is the china um, of a personal nature, which it probably is, was it used principally by the spouse to whom the gift was made? And that's where this might fall apart, because if it's used for the whole family, perhaps you could argue that, no, it wasn't used just by the, the spouse whose aunt died. Um, and is it substantial in value compared to the circumstances of the parties? So I think we're back to that 850 analysis otherwise. And and back okay. to the question about uh, 1985, too, you know, the change in the law in 1985. Right. But probably well, this is separate property. Okay. Um, one last question. And then I'm going to go to a couple of other topics. It says, I'm, secret, I'm thinking of secretly eloping with my girlfriend. We really haven't talked about a prenuptial agreement. If we don't get the agreement, what would, be, what would she be entitled to when we get married? Raj? Uh, yeah, with my wedding a, a month away uh, and all the stress of family members, you know, <laughs> I might elope myself. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and as everyone knows, I haven't talked about a prenuptial agreement either. But um, if you if you don't get in if you don't get an agreement, we said before, you basically fall under the statutory presumptions of family law, meaning that anything that you acquire uh, after marriage that's not from gift, inheritance, or device is community property. And um, so she would be. I, I hate using the term entitled because it's. Uh, I think it misguides people in some ways when when things fall apart. But she, you know, she would be eligible to receive um, half of the community assets unless some other um, modification, transmutation, or something else can be shown. So, um, if you want to secretly elope with this girlfriend, uh, best of luck to you. Um, and if you want to do it without a prenuptial agreement, I have no comment. And uh, you know, all you can do is wish them the best. But uh, you basically fall under the statute. Dan, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I absolutely agree, Raj. There's another aspect, too, and that is that um, what he's waiving by not having an, a prenup is the possibility of not having spousal support if his marriage goes awry. Uh, there, so with a valid prenup, you can waive community property and have, it, have it, your property treated as though you weren't married, for example if it's done properly. <clears throat> and you can also waive spousal support, maybe. And I say that maybe because that's changed in the last 10 years or so. There was a period of time it was clear that you could, but more recently there are cases making it, again, questionable whether you can waive spousal support. But I, I think it is um, likely enough that you can, that it is worth a game try to do that, if that's what your heart says to do, that you want to make sure you have less exposure to spousal support. Now, of course, if, if um, he's secretly eloping and doesn't have time, therefore, to do a, uh, a prenup, 
which requires uh, certain formalities, and, and some of those are gauged by time and having another attorney, et cetera. Then they could later do a postnuptial, but the minute right. they've married, then suddenly a thing called fiduciary duty comes in to play and makes it much more difficult to uh, have a valid postnuptial agreement, one equal to a prenup. And, uh, and for example, in a postnuptial, it's my opinion that you can't waive spousal support under a postnuptial. You could affect your uh, community property interests, probably, and your assets, but I don't think you can waive spouse support under a post-nup. And one of the real reasons that wealthier individuals have for um, doing either a prenup or a post-nup is not just to waive community property, not just to waive spousal support, but to clarify what their assets consist of at the moment they marry. Because 10 years later, in a very successful situation, a lot of changes of the assets, accumulations of wealth. Uh, pretty soon, it's very difficult to remember what the value of assets were and what the assets consisted of at the date of marriage. So that's one of the functions of these agreements, is to clarify what the assets are. Well, gentlemen, um, we're coming towards the end of our show. And I want to thank both of you for joining me this evening and answering these uh, client and prospective client questions. Uh, Raj, I wanted to tell you today that, um, you know, we had been talking about offering mediation services. Uh, a client today called in. He and his wife are uh, hiring us to do a mediation, a family law mediation. They don't want to go through divorce. Um, that's kind of awesome. what Raj has mentioned over uh, the shows about his maybe niche special niche expertise. Uh, Daniel, what do you what do you feel your niche expertise might be? <laughs> well, that's a good good question. I haven't thought that much about it. Um, I think I'm good at property, and I'm good at custody. I have a lot of experience in custody, um, but my training, I think, and my strength, I have an economics degree and. Uh, I, I think that my training basically goes to those two directions, child custody and to property divisions. But um, mediation, I think, is a very valuable thing to do. It's worthwhile for people to uh, mediate if they can. It's a way of both parties feeling much better about uh, the, the division of their property and, and the outcome of their uh, divorce if they can mediate it. And, and you know... Um, if it goes awry, you can always go to the courts. Right. Daniel, I'd like to invite you to join us next week as a regular guest host with us. You can do oh, this you. show from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in the world as long as you have a phone. You can call in, and through the magic of technology, we can uh, have you host the show with us. Gentlemen, next week, Thank what you. would you like to um, talk about next week? Well, uh, why don't we go over some more property issues? Uh, I think Dan's uh, economic expertise would be of use to us. Maybe we can uh, hit him with some highbrow questions. And uh, as always, I think we'll end up defaulting to some updates on the Johnny Depp case and uh, a little talk about uh, child child support and spouse support. Gentlemen, that's very good. I want to remind our listeners that they can call in at 646-668-8791 and leave their questions or ask us live for their questions. 
Gentlemen, I want to wish you both a good night, and I'll speak to you and see you next week on the radio. Thank you, Vince. It was a pleasure. Good night. Thank you.